This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Our guests today are Dr. Gareth Bryson, consultant pathologist and clinical director for laboratory medicine at the NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, and Dr. David Harrison, professor of pathology from the University of St. Andrews, and both from ICARED, the Industrial Center for Artificial Intelligence Research and Digital Diagnostics, a program matching AI solutions and research with health and social care priorities across Scotland. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. We're going to be talking about the long journey of limp-implementing digital pathology in a large healthcare system, barriers to adoption, the promise of artificial intelligence, the business case for digital pathology, and we've finally been able to articulate one, and the experience of both doctors Harrison and Bryson in creating a digital slide-sharing network throughout Scotland. Dr. David Harrison and Gareth Bryson, both from Scotland. David Harrison from St. Andrews University. Gareth Bryson from NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. We're going to be talking about going digital and the digital journey and then incorporating AI or artificial intelligence. Gareth, uh, congratulations. I think you are well on your journey, or you actually have gone fully digital, which I think is is quite an accomplishment, especially from the perspective of us here in the US, where we're at maybe five to 10% of practices have gone digital. So I think you may have a huge head start on us. So I'm sure it was not easy and you learned, you learned an awful lot. Maybe just tell us, you know, how did, how did it all start? Thanks. I think it really started for me. I remember as a pathology trainee, probably in the early 2000s, seeing digital scanners and seeing that technology being available. And it was maybe used in our institution, not for digital pathology research, but really to support some research strands, but didn't really see it as at that time as a digital tool. And it probably wasn't until about 2015, 2016, at conferences and trade fairs, beginning to see some diagnostic systems coming out and actually seeing the performance of these as as being something that might be useful as a tool for primary diagnosis, which is really where our focus was based. Um, And it really came out of seeing those there and being a new merged big department looking for the, the next big thing in pathology and thinking that this was something that we'd like to take a look at. Interesting, you said the focus, your first focus was on primary diagnosis, I think. So it can be intimidating or daunting to people. So did you use any applications before that, you know, like uh, just consults or sharing slides, or did you just jump right in uh, to primary diagnosis? For us, it was really always about the primary diagnosis. And even when we started, we weren't focusing so much on AI or even the possibilities of AI, although that is something that we've come to think is going to be really useful about digital pathology. For us, it was some of the workflow benefits that we thought we could benefit from that digital pathology could maybe provide for us. We're a very large operation with 50 pathologists working in a single site producing about 600,000 glass slides a year. And obviously that's a a huge task managing that analog workflow, both to and from pathologist offices and not losing any of the material. Um, And it just seemed as if there was possibly something in trying to manage a, a digital workflow that would bring us benefits in terms of efficiency and performance. 
That is quite a large practice, over 50 pathologists. Uh, David, where, where did things start for you? So as Gareth said, it started a little bit further back, uh, probably late 1990s as a trainee in pathology. There was an interest developing around virtual microscopes. And this was pre-fast internet. So actually, I remember organizing installment of ISDN lines so that we could actually drive a robotic microscope virtually. So you could have a microscope in one site and the operator on a different site effectively reading the slide on the microscope, but on a screen. That clearly wasn't going to work. Similar to Gareth, you begin to see scanners coming around, the quality of scanning being better and absolutely crucially, the speed of transmission of images or the way of transmitting images across internet much better. So really it was around 2000 that I began to move from virtual microscope, robotically driven, to using images. And part of it was, again, as Gareth has said, primarily for first diagnosis, but also for consult. One of the areas I covered was transplant pathology, and that required me getting out of bed at times, having to go into the lab, or I was traveling. It became very attractive to me to be able to at least give a first opinion remotely using an image and really that's where I got into it. So it was very much driven by a real practical need, not just curiosity, but a real practical need. And I think that's kind of conditioned my whole approach to digital pathology since. Yeah, I think one of the benefits, one of the huge benefits is, like you said, arises out of practical considerations. I think there's the potential in pathology for a lot of sitting around, a lot of getting out of bed at three in the morning. Many people may not realize it. How can we increase or make the best use of the pathologist's time, I think, is a very practical consideration. It's interesting how these things evolve. Digital pathology has been with us for maybe 20 years or so, but what we mean is different. The, with the advent of the digital camera, a lot of pathologists put that thing on the top of their microscope and then developed a way to share slides with colleagues. That evolved into slide scanners, which is in many ways is a very different thing. There's been challenges such as the speed of the internet, the size of files, the expense of, of storing these big files. You know, As technology evolves, we're certainly gonna be the, the beneficiaries of that. Gareth, where are you now? The story goes back a, a few years to about 2017, where we actively started investigating digital pathology and speaking to a few vendors and having some demos. And at that point, we, we really tried to gather support from within the organization, the management of the pathology department and laboratories, and also with the IT department, recognizing that this was going to be you know, critical to the success. We managed to find some funding through Scottish government, and we ran a pilot of digital pathology just to see. It was so new at that time, at least in terms of actually being core to a primary diagnostic service, that we didn't want to jump straight in. So we ran the pilot and we learned pretty early on that pathologists really enjoyed this tool and found it beneficial for their service. But obviously there was learning out of that pilot. And often with new technology, what you really find are the barriers to success. For us in that pilot, we found that it was really critical to get the workstation optimized and set up with user input devices for pathologists to allow them to use the system to its maximum potential. Really, although the, the pathologists liked it, they were also very critical of when the performance was poor within the, the system. Because I think we were kind of pushing the capabilities of our NHS 
IT infrastructure to the limits. Uh, things have improved now and we've got a really you know, stable system. Making the IT support robust enough to actually rely on this tool for our day-to-day -day work was one of the challenges. We've progressed, you know, seeing where we are now, we, we were fortunate enough through a lot of work of David to get some innovation funding from Innovate UK, a, a branch of the UK government to help us progress with digitisation as part of a larger innovation project that David leads. That's really allowed us over the last two years to expand our pilot into you know, full-scale digital deployment in NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde to the point now where we're scanning 40,000 whole slide images per month, so generating about half a million um, slides per year. So about 80% of our, of our full production. And that's been a, a really exciting, but also quite challenging journey. That is incredible. So you talked about funding, which I think is a key piece. Um, that's kind of the engine in some sense of what allows us to function. In the US, we have large groups asking the question, does it make sense to make the investment at this point? And so I'd like to hear the unique circumstances around funding and the NHS and, and how that evolved and how that allowed you to jump in. Uh, but first, let's talk about the challenges. Obviously, there's IT challenges. Hopefully, we're the beneficiaries of Moore's Law. That is, costs of doing these things will come down asymptotically, hopefully close to zero, our, our ability to store files uh, will be enhanced. Time it takes to scan will go down. Internet speeds will go up. Display qualities will go up. So there's those challenges, the IT challenges, but then you also touched on other sources of resistance or challenges, not the least of which would be the practicing pathologist. What did you find there? Yeah, so it, probably the challenges that we ended up facing were not necessarily the ones that I predicted at the start. Um, and actually, you know, reflecting on your, your question that you, you're suspecting that the, the challenge might be the practicing pathologist being the biggest challenge. And that was actually what my perception was, that there would be a group of pathologists that wouldn't really adapt to working digitally. And, and I think there are some, but that's a, a much lower level of resistance than than I than I expected. Um, so I had the the sort of clinical acceptability probably as as the top of my list as as concerns, followed by the the IT infrastructure, the IT support. Um, and then lowest on my list of concerns was actually the laboratory. Uh, but actually our journey has been slightly different. The pathologists in the large part are really keen on the technology, really like it as long as it works and as long as it works fast enough. Um, and also, apart from the initial setup phase, once operational, the IT component has not been too difficult. Um, so the area where we're having to spend the most work is optimizing the laboratory workflow for digital pathology. So that's optimizing the, the glass slide production. I think we already had very good technical quality, but your digital image is only going to ever be as good as, as the glass slide. Um, so we really worked hard to, to make sure that we've optimized our glass slide quality. So that's looking at section thickness, staining, um, also you know looking at the workflow in the laboratory so that the extra step of digitization is as minimal 
impact as possible for the laboratory, um, which ties into what you're saying about the business case and, and the additional costs of digital pathologies, trying to, to minimize those. It adds a step. Many people might uh, maybe can look the other way, or but let's be realistic. Yeah. I mean, for sure, it adds. It does add a step, and um, you know, we want to. to it, there's really no getting away from that, and that 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 has two main negative impacts. The first being the additional handling time for the laboratory, um, and and inevitably that is additional staff resource needed to do that, particularly in a in a timely fashion. Um, but the other main challenge is that that extra step takes time for uh, which which is potentially a delay for the diagnosis or for the the slides being available to pathologists for reading. And, you know, we're, we're maybe not under the same turnaround time pressures as other services, um, perhaps in the US for for the majority of cases. But there are some cases that are very time sensitive and, and where there's clinical expectation of, of very fast results, such as the the you know the the breast diagnostic service where patients are seen back the next day for for results um, from biopsies and you know introducing digital to those high-speed areas has been a challenge. David, uh, what's been your experience in terms of, uh, you know, barriers uh, to adoption and getting everyone on the same page? One area, because I've seen a number of departments think about adopting digital or actually adopting, one point is actually having a champion or champions in a department. So Gareth's being modest here, but had it not been for Gareth and some of his colleagues, there wouldn't have been the buy-in that there has been. There wouldn't have been that momentum, that that sense of inevitability. This is going to happen because it's the right thing. So you kind of need the quality, you need the safety to be assured. But actually, I don't think you can underestimate the importance of a champion who says, no, this can work and who actually blazes the trail. So I think that's what Gareth and his colleagues have done. To be honest, to a large extent, that's why it hasn't been the biggest problem. It could have been the biggest problem, but I think having champions is hugely important. And I think that will be equally important as we move from the implementation of digital pathology to actually starting to run AI algorithms or apps on that material. So the sense of inevitability, I I like that. At some level, we all kind of have that, that we know this is the path forward, but yet, you know, how do we actually make that happen? in the real world might be a different matter. Let's talk about the business case, because I think that is where there's been a lot of hand-waving explanations and things like that, where we know the benefits, even in the early days, like to be able to share slides, share cases on demand, share images with your colleagues across the hallway, across the country. Well, gee, it would be great not to have to schlep all these glass slides around, not to have to store them, and so on. But to actually articulate the business case and then use that to secure the funding. What's your perspective on that? It's a really interesting question. If I'm completely honest, I'm not fully convinced of the business case where we are right now today. I'll explain why that is. Firstly, I think there isn't a single business case. So I think different practices have different areas where digital can make a real contribution, can enhance efficiency, and ultimately can bring about cost. 
One of the first studies was done by University of Pittsburgh, 11% saving. It was based on Pittsburgh pathologists and I think some Canadian pathologists. And that's great, but actually that probably isn't translatable. So I think the experiment that we're doing uh, with Gareth, and in part it is an experiment, so the money wasn't given to us simply to implement, the money was given to experiment and to do research, part of which is to assess the business case. So I think the business case is likely to be made on the kinds of issues Gareth's already raised. It's about quality assurance. It's about changing the workflow. It's about making that more efficient. It's about finding an efficient and cheap way to store, be that on cloud or wherever else. So actually, I'm not convinced there is yet a business case that works for everybody. I think the direction of travel is clear and I think costs are coming down, which will make it better. But I do think the business case is going to be tailored to individual practices. Large departments will have different needs and different economic drivers than perhaps a three or a four or five person practice. Pathology is practiced in a wide variety of settings and what might be true for you and your group might not be true or generalizable to everyone. I think people are adopting this theory or tell me what you folks think. Maybe there is no business case, you know, in terms of just going digital, maybe even for primary sign out and other secondary applications for consults, frozen sections and and so on, you know, it could be a wash there. But what is getting people excited is the prospects of adding algorithms on top of the digital pathology practice. So computational pathology, AI-based algorithms, where we can help tailor and drive the workflow, get the right cases to the right pathologist at the right time. And then maybe somewhere even further down the road is adding computational pathology through image analysis and AI-based algorithms so we can develop predictive and prognostic markers really to incorporate on our reports and drive precision medicine. So do many share that perspective that maybe the business case isn't quite there yet, or it might be true for some, but not others, but with AI is going to be a game changer? Yes, I think so. But again, how robust is that? Because that's like saying we're going to buy it because we hope it's useful for us one day. So that certainly is important. And I do think people that adopt digital realize that's a stepping stone to the next step, which is implementing AI. But actually, I think at the same time, there's perhaps either an under ambition or an over ambition, depending who you speak to about what that will achieve. I think the realistic ambition, as I see it, is actually to change workflow to change practice. In other words, to do the simple things better, faster, more consistently, more reproducibly. The fine tuning of diagnostic practice, of triage, of reading biomarkers, important though it is, and that's kind of where I spend some of my research life, I actually think that is yet some way off, apart from perhaps very specific examples like reading uh, hormone receptor status in breast cancer, for example. So I think you're right, but I'm not sure that we should be saying, let's not worry about the business case for digital because AI is coming. Because I think AI is going to have its own challenges in terms of a business case, not least because of interoperability and because of continued version development, which is something perhaps we'll get onto. I was, I was just going to come in on the business case. I mean, really support what David's saying. I think we'll get to the end of our program and I think we will have a robust enough business case based on digital pathology alone. I think there's enough 
benefits in a in a large system like ours i mean it will be a business case for our for our environment where there are benefits from having a fully digital workflow that justify the costs and that's partly because i think some of the scary costs of digital storage are coming down significantly and it, that's one of management's main concerns is what is the long-term costs of digital storage and if we can allay the fears there with probably cloud storage then i think we'll have an okay business case but it's kind of in the balance i think for digital pathology alone i'm also hopeful like david was saying that ai will add something to that will that will really strengthen the business case but it's difficult to quantify at the moment the other thing i'd say in the on the business case is it's not just about the bottom line cost you know i think there's a tendency in pathology that we look to say how can we do this cheaper and how can we be more efficient and i think we need to look at other things uh, you know an example that i use in talks is talking about development of safety in cars in the automobile industry so the addition of things like radar cruise control or abs brakes and all of these things that are added to cars don't make them more efficient they make them more expensive to produce but they make them safer and we as a society have decided that we want to pay for that safety and some of that is a consumer level and some of that is a regulatory level and i think there are similarities with some of the ai tools that are coming out for pathology that they will actually make safer diagnosis for patients so that can be really got end-to-end -end tracking through the pathology department right to the point where the diagnosis is made on the screen which we don't have with an analog system and um, but also automated quality control looking using diagnostic algorithms to check for discrepancies between the algorithm and the reports and all of these things i think will bring in real patient safety benefits that are worth something and will help make the business case, not just the financial case for digital pathology. Yeah, let's talk about AI. It's fun to talk about, it's, you know, it's exciting. It's definitely a hot topic, but I think, so A, maybe can we be clear about just what exactly is AI? And second, uh, what is the current state of the use or deployment of AI algorithms in actual practice? You can go back to the 1950s to look for a definition of AI and you'll find a new definition every year. So I think actually it's something people recognize, but it's very difficult to define. I would see it effectively as the toolkit or the process that allows us to do things that currently rely on humans, to do those without that human intervention, or to do what humans do better, or to actually take it to the next step, which is to do things basically by handling large amounts of data, to do things which a human is not able to do. Wherever you pitch on those levels, all of those have an application, I think, into digital pathology. So, I mean, there are a plethora now of companies initially starting from biomarkers, perhaps around biomarker development, developing fairly straightforward algorithms, which are not really AI to quantify. And that's continuing apace. And there are now companies with really good AI type algorithms doing things that are really clever, that have employed machine learning, deep learning techniques. Those are now happening, I think, particularly around receptor estimation in breast cancer. 
And what we're looking for there is quantifiability. We're looking at how do you deal with heterogeneity rather than a manual histo score. But actually underpinning all of this, and it's worth restating, is the quality of the material you start with. So if laboratories have got completely different immune protocols or quality of HIV, actually the AI can't necessarily just come in and say, okay, I ignore all that, here's your answer. So I think AI is finding its place, it's beginning to get in there. We're not as far as advanced as radiology, for example, with radiomics, but it's beginning to make inroads. And I think the challenge is ensuring that we are data ready, the data is good enough quality, that enough labs are digitized for actually to get the real world experience. And then there's a big issue around the regulatory approval. How do you regulate and approve AI? So a number of challenges and we're beginning to push the doors on all of those. So I think one aspect, kind of as I alluded to before, is just getting a handle or a good definition of what is AI. So David, you talked about breast markers, for example, and we've had image analysis and ways to quantitate you know, the number of cells that turn brown by computer for over 20 years now. But no one was talking about AI in the early 2000s. And then, like you said, a lot of it depends on the quality of the staining and the protocols you use. There was a big catastrophe, for lack of a better word, in breast biomarkers in the U.S. and Canada, at least, in terms of the ER and PR stains by immunohistochemistry, which led us kind of to mobilize with ASCO and the CAP to come up with standards for pre-analytical processing, six six to 72 hours in neutral buffered formalin, only use antibodies, primary antibodies that have been validated um, either in your laboratory or approved by the FDA and, and so forth. And so really, we've, we've come a long way to standardizing these markers and improving the quality, at least from an analytic and pre-analytic perspective. But really, how far have we come since the early 2000s, or how, how has that evolved? I think we've evolved quite a lot. Those early studies were essentially a histoscore where you would look at intensity, you would measure intensity, you would not necessarily know where that immunostain, that precipitate had formed. Was it on a tumor cell? Was it on two tumor cells? Was it actually on an endothelial cell? So it wasn't very discriminating because we hadn't taught the computer to be discriminating. So I think what AI has brought is actually bringing more discrimination uh, in terms of, is that real? Is that on a tumor cell, so you can classify for tumor, for not tumor, and that's something the computer can learn. And I think you can get beyond that, so you can actually then begin to say, yes, that really is membrane staining. And some of the biomarkers, particularly with things like HER2, did try and make that distinction. But you can begin to train the computer to say, yeah, I recognize that as membrane staining, or I recognize that as nuclear staining. And rather than getting an output that may be effectively a histoscore, you can report that information in a different way. You've got the coordinates recorded, so you can begin to get more of a handle on heterogeneity. I think what AI also does, because it learns in parameters that we may not see, it actually may be able to say, we're not going to rely so much just on intensity. Or if we do, we're actually going to have a way of normalizing that intensity within that section so that the result I give you on that slide means something to pathologist X in another place who is also employing that method. So I think AI basically allows us to take on board a lot more information, different information, additional information, 
and to process that so that hopefully what we have is an answer very similar to the computer readout from 20 years ago, but actually with more confidence in it because it can be more discriminating because it's learned more features that may or may not be important in giving its answer. Yeah, I think we are looking looking forward to that as for us as pathologists to provide more usable, more accurate information, maybe more standardizable information that can be used to compare patients across across treatment groups and so on. So I, I think we had that technology 20 years ago, but I think a lot of those features were lacking. You folks have ambitious plans to create a, a sharing network throughout Scotland. Tell us what's the vision for that? Where do things stand now? And who are the players that are involved? There's various NHS sites. I'm sure there's others. Looking right back to our initial investigation into digital pathology, we did that in conjunction with some funding from Scottish government. And really right from the start, we saw that digital pathology had a, a definite advantage for pathology in Scotland to join up services and Scotland has, has kind of led the way early on with radiology, PACs being joined up across Scotland as a, as a single network. So we really looked to that model and trying to replicate that, although pathology obviously is a bit behind radiology in terms of digitization. So Scotland's an, a fairly interesting country, although we're about five and a half million, there's quite diverse geography in Scotland. So where I'm based in Glasgow with a big group of pathologists is serving a very urban population of about 1.2 million in a relatively small geographical area. Elsewhere in Scotland, for example, in NHS Highland, which is about you know a third of the landmass in Scotland with a with a relatively small population. And that leads to big discrepancies. So in, in Glasgow, we've got one pathologist for about every nine square miles of area, whereas in in Highland, there's one pathologist for 3,000 square miles of area. And that brings in problems, particularly for, for the Scottish government, because we've got a, a very joined up healthcare system. How do you provide the same level of service to patients in Scotland, irrespective of where they are based? Challenging questions, how do you maintain local pathology services in rural hospitals, but how you support those services so that patients have equal access to specialist services and importantly expertise? How do you support a, a sort of hybrid model of local and remote delivery? And I think for those questions, digital pathology has a definite part to play. And I think that is accepted now in the pathology community in Scotland. So we've got a, a sort of community body called the Scottish Pathology Network, and really digital pathology has been adopted by them as an enabler of new ways of working, joining services up across Scotland. So where we're at now, there are, there are 10 pathology providers across Scotland. Five of them have signed up to digital pathology with, with varying degrees. You know, we're, we're right in at one end going for 100% digitization and, and full primary diagnosis by digital pathology. Some of the other providers are not quite so far in and are using it for teaching and training and, and referred cases and, and things like that. The, the aspiration is definitely a joined up service with a joined up lists or, or limbs to provide the back-end support to that and really enabling a network approach to pathology services for the whole country. 
So I think the project we've talked about, this funded programme called I Cared, basically is two objectives. One is that national rollout. And as Gareth highlighted, it really depends on what else is available. So every individual in Scotland has an individual health number. That means if we have the national system Gareth has described, anyone in any part of the country can investigate the images from a biopsy taken anywhere else in the country on an individual because everybody has that unique identifier. So that national database, obviously with appropriate permissions, can be accessed anywhere to see anything on that patient. So that's the first thing. The second thing is quite a lot of AI is developed sometimes using avatar created data, sometimes using very specific clinical trials material. Actually, if you don't test it and validate it on real world pathology, we're almost certainly going to crash and burn. So the other reason for having the entire population database is actually to support the research so that we can look at an algorithm and that will often be working with a company, but looking at an algorithm or developing an algorithm based on real world data and applying it to real world data so that we're not simply buying a product that worked because it was tested on whatever clinical series or whatever. So I think those two aspects, the hand in hand access for any patient anywhere in the country, because they've got a unique health identifier under which their image would be stored, plus the validation and the, the research that becomes possible using real world examples. I think both of those kind of are held together. That's why it's so important that what Gareth's done locally, we actually take and make national. Everything works together. We certainly don't want to crash and burn, like you said. So maybe tell us, what are, what are some of the barriers? I know interoperability is a huge concern. It's nice to think we're going to buy an off-the-shelf solution, but we really have to see how it works in the real world. So it sounds like you have an advantage having a kind of a nationalized system with patients in single databases or as few databases as possible compared to maybe other environments. So getting the health information in one place, I think is a potential barrier. And then getting all the components to work, I think is, is another part of interoperability, right? The scanners and every, all the components need to be able to communicate with each other. I, th I think it is a real, a real concern. And, you know, as, as I've said already, you know, we started this four or five years ago when there was even less interoperability or, or even consideration of interoperability than there is now. The model that we progressed along five years ago is probably not going to be the model that we want to get to in 10 years' time or, or even sooner if we can. In the way that there is in radiology, interoperable systems from multiple vendors that can all work seamlessly together and be joined up into a, effectively a, a single system. And I think that's where we want to get to and we want to support vendors in, in developing that. I think we've solved the problem in some way within NHS Scotland to this point that we've got a limited repertoire of suppliers that we try to get to work together on the understanding that there isn't off the shelf, as you say, a system that allows everybody to join up disparate providers' equipments. Nice to see that over the last few years, there has been a move from the vendors towards um, understanding the importance of interoperability. 
I'm sure David will come in and talk about AI, but that's even with our, our relatively limited um, supplier list at the moment, we certainly don't want to be limited in terms of the AI that we can deploy within that system. So it's very important that the, the suppliers that we have work to standards so that we can implement a variety of AI choosing the, the best in class for various products. David, do you want to comment more? Yeah, I think there's probably been two cultures actually, and there's a change. The two cultures, one being we can vertically integrate. So a company can provide everything. And actually, I think the companies that had that mentality realized there's no way they can develop sufficient numbers of algorithms for all the possible uses that would be in pathology. Plus, that means if they don't get the customer, they never get the customer. So I think there is a move much better in my mind towards that openness where effectively you're thinking of AI apps that you can run. And that, of course, requires a platform. Uh, it requires an app store. It, it requires the hospital IT to actually be competent to run that. But I think that model is much better because it does allow a degree of flexibility but with it, of course, comes the challenge of how do you know the product you're going to buy is actually as good, as safe, as effective as it's said to be. So there are huge challenges around interoperability, particularly when the market is rapidly expanding and the number of companies involved are rapidly expanding. But I think we will have an open approach where companies will basically have to do it whatever images they produce have to be readable by other people's apps. And with that comes a huge amount of reassurance required to ensure that actually we don't introduce bias, we don't have bugs in the system that start churning out the wrong answer. But I think that is what we're moving. And I think increasingly with AI development, people are thinking about how do you avoid some of the problems that you might encounter right at the beginning? So no, but you don't just set the computer, learn something here and come back and tell me what you think. You actually say, you've got to be really careful about, for example, intensity, because we know no matter how hard we try, that will be different between different laboratories or color because somebody's hematoxylin from one supplier might be subtly different color from somebody else's. So we can actually begin to inform the AI knowing that the ultimate requirement is something that is safe, guaranteed, and truly interoperable. In other words, it's as safe and effective in one center as it is in another. So I think AI has got a lot of learning to do to actually ensure that what it's producing isn't just, oh, it works great, press the button. It's actually got to, I think, do a lot more background work to ensure that not only does it work, but we can explain why it works. And that's the basis of really true interoperability. It does have a lot of learning to do, but I think that's a very intriguing future where the app store model, right? Where it's somehow analogous to what you have on your iPhone. I think it highlights that pathologists do so many different things and there's so many different use cases and so many disease states. You know, so I think there's early excitement about the very common ones, prostate cancer. Can we develop an AI algorithm to look at your 12 core prostate biopsies, identify the cancer, assign it to Gleason grade? That's very exciting, but <laughs> there's so many more. There's a very, you know, so to speak, there's a long tail and there's almost an infinite number of apps that we could come up with or an infinite number of apps that there will be a market for. So I think that's a very intriguing idea. 
so we've talked about so much today. Thank you so much for uh, being with us, uh, David Harrison and Gareth Bryson. So before we wrap up, maybe tell us uh, what excites you? Where do you see the field headed in the next 10 years or so? Gareth? I'm really excited about pathology and really excited about digital pathology. I started after immunohistochemistry had come into pathology. So I've always lived with immunohistochemistry and pathology. It's obviously expanded a lot more and the repertoire has expanded, but it was, I wasn't there for that explosion. And I'm really delighted to be around and involved at the time where digitization is going to come in and take over pathology. And although the molecular transformation that's happened over the last 10 years has been important for a subset of patients, I think the digital transformation will be important for all patients. And, you know, we're, we're all going to be working digitally in the next 10 years. I'm not great at giving predictions of how long things will take. I think it, it might take longer, particularly for the AI than you know, three or four years. I think we are looking at sort of five to 10 years for a lot of that coming into practice. But I'm just excited about the journey and, and, and seeing how far we can go. I love to look at the slide. Every slide tells a story at heart. That's what makes me tick, uh, thinking about pathology, thinking about images. So what AI right now is kind of pitching itself is to do what I do better. If I'm thinking, what would I like to happen? I want to see AI do things that I can't do. So genomics has obviously exploded. Everyone says, yep, genomics is the way forward. But actually the genome is an awfully long way from protein and that's an awfully long way away from morphology. So in many ways, morphology captures the genome, the phenome, the epigenome, the metabolome. I believe that with AI, we can actually extract even more data from images of tissue that tell us much more. So there's exciting work happening in a number of places using an H&E to predict the mutational changes in a tumor. We're doing some work where we're actually not doing immunohistochemistry, but we're still able to identify CD3, CD3, CD8, CD20 lymphocytes in, in a tumor. So what I look forward to, and it's going to take some time, is actually using AI to do the things I can't do, but I know they're there. Every slide tells a story. Every slide tells a story indeed. And I think that is a very intriguing future. Many people may not have believed there would be a day where we could say there's as much information in an H and E image that we can extract and make useful compared to molecular. So I think I think there is a very bright future indeed. Well, Drs. Gareth Bryson and David Harrison, thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.